I met Jennifer Fisk about five or six years ago when she was president of the board of Canadian Mental Health Association, Niagara. And Jen and I met mostly over a fundraiser CMHA Niagara does called Women and Wellness. And Jennifer suffers pretty, pretty deep anxiety and often panic attacks. And that's part of what we bonded over because I, I have the similar problems and I've talked a lot about my levels of anxiety. So Jan, I thought um, uh, we could chat today because there's so much to talk about how we felt pre-COVID, how people with anxiety um, felt during COVID and what's happening now as we're starting to come out of it for people with anxiety and panic attacks and people who just developed or recognized that kind of anxiety or their anxiety ramped up during COVID. So it's left us in a pretty interesting situation. Can you just give me um, a quick overview of what life was like pre-COVID? So probably the last six months before COVID started, I was on a pretty good, uh, I thought even keel. I, I was only traveling to Toronto when I needed to for work. And most of the anxiety was just a low level. I can manage this if I use my mindfulness techniques and I take the medication that I need to take. This is, you know, I can manage this. Uh, life felt very manageable at that time. Now, in COVID... No, hang on. Um, I just, before before we go, that's maybe a little too brief. Um, okay. <laughs> because I remember the first time we chatted and we did an interview a few years ago, and you were going to Toronto on a regular basis for your job, You yep. and it was at the same place. You had to leave super early yep. to make sure you got there. And, uh, and then there was something about pencils, if you... Uh, if you just just tell, talk a little bit, because that will really give people uh, uh, a bar that they can say, okay, here's where Jennifer was, and then we can look at where people are above and below that that bar. Interesting, then, that I thought that was low-key. <laughs> but yeah, so for my work, uh, it involved a lot of uh, traveling to Downsview and into downtown Toronto for work. Um, one of my points of anxiety is public transit of any type. So the thought of going into the subway would break me into a cold sweat. Um, so I had to come develop coping mechanisms. Um, some people are able to just face it and white knuckle it. I tried that a couple of times. It didn't work for me. So I came up with a system where I was then driving into Toronto to do the work. Um, but that, of course, eight extra hours out of my day where I could have been reading or, you know, falling asleep on the go train like most people. Um, but it didn't. So by the time I got into Toronto, I, you know, you're feeling anxious already. And um, I have two tells that that a couple of my close employers have figured out. One is when I'm going into a meeting, I have to have several pencils and they all have to be super sharp nothing nothing breaks my heart more than a dull pencil and it will actually set me at a feeling of unease in a meeting uh and the other one is lipstick i have to have at least two lipsticks with me luckily i don't normally show that one. <laughs> but yeah i had i had developed these what i thought were coping mechanisms and it allowed me to keep my anxiety at a fairly low keel uh you know in the months leading up to COVID. and then um I think by what you were saying was you had developed some mindful techniques so that anxiety was even lower and you were coping better when oh. COVID came along. Yes, yes. So 
um, to deal with some some of those issues, I think after the last time we talked, I went to the doctor. We, you know, I learned some more mindfulness techniques, which can which can be helpful to some degree. Um, we changed my medications, and so while I was still going into Toronto, I was not. It didn't cause anxiety for two days ahead of time about having to go in, because that's sort of the dichotomy as well. Is that I love my job, so the thought of not going to do my job would break my heart, but I was anxious to go and do my job. And so, you know, once I got on some medication, um, I came clean with a couple of close people uh, that I was suffering with the anxiety at that time. And it, it felt like it was getting a little bit worse before it got better. And they're the ones who said, go see your doctor. And we got it fairly settled. So, you know, you get through life with those coping mechanisms. And and I thought it was fairly on a, a low keel for what me, for what I am. Uh, maybe only take a couple of pencils into a meeting as opposed to four or five. And one lipstick? Yeah, well, no. <laughs> that didn't change, eh? <laughs> no, th that one might be an addiction in retrospect. Less oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> right. Got it. Got it. Uh, so I know that, um, you know, you find out, and many people found out, found this out in, in COVID, you find out that people are some are understanding not everybody obviously but people are understanding and there was some knowledge growing uh that anxiety was a real problem for people and and nobody was you know sort of saying oh stay away from me now because you've got this anxiety problem we came into covid and it's funny because what people said to me i mean we're going to talk a little bit about the isolation and how it you know, it was so negative for some people, but could be positive as well. But when we started COVID, people said to me, oh, I guess it doesn't make it when we went into the first lockdown. I guess it doesn't really make any difference to you because you work at home. And actually what happened was my anxiety level, which was not debilitating for me, um, um, my anxiety level started to you know creep up and up and up because I couldn't go out. That was my first thing, right? They have now told me, I don't really care if I go out, but now they've told me I can't. So that sort of gave me this claustrophobic kind of feeling. A rebellious reaction. Like I didn't want to go out, but the minute you tell me I can't, I'm out of here. That's right. all I wanted to do. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And then eventually what I realized was that I was missing people. So I didn't miss going to a restaurant. I didn't do that much anyway. But I did miss seeing people that I would just see around, you know, business yeah. association, run into them downtown. They were at business meetings and I started to uh, talk to those people a little bit more and everybody was agreeing that that was part of the problem. But as COVID went on, you started to isolate more and it started to be more comfortable for you. It, it did. So um, I actually say in some ways, COVID was my Olympics. I'm a germaphobe with OCD and introvert tendencies. So I felt like I've been training literally this, for this my whole life. And I was ready for it. I was like, this is great. I never have to see people again. And then I realized that much like you, I didn't necessarily miss being out and about, but the, the handful of people that make up my, my clan, if you will, not being able to see them. Right. And again, it was because not that I necessarily would have, but now you've told me I can't. That's not OK. And so that that was a little bit of where my struggle was there. But I, you know, I have a lot of guilt 
because COVID for me was not that hard because I'm an introvert and because I am scared of people and that's part of my anxiety. Um, I actually would get a little bit kind of ramped up and worried every time they said we were reopening. So, <laughs> you know, I know I had friends who were ecstatic, like we can go out, we could do all of these things. And I think in, in two years, I've been out maybe a handful of times, uh, always outdoors, like just, just not really interacting with people. And that felt okay to me. Uh, I know that they tell us that that's bad, but I was like, but like I said, I had a lot of guilt because it seemed easy for me. And I saw everybody around me suffering because they couldn't do the things that they would normally do. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm an extrovert and uh, I learned many, many years ago that an extrovert doesn't mean, you know, you're loud and obnoxious. What it means is that you get your energy from being around people. And I pulled away and uh, I take up an immunosuppressant. It's not a huge amount, but I started using that as an excuse for why I couldn't go out. And I didn't see my family for two years. And uh, I still haven't seen a lot of them. And I started to use this more and more often, this immunosuppressant, reason why I couldn't go out. What I found started to really get hard for me though was this yes you can no you can't yes you can no you can't yes you can no you can't oh we're okay oops here comes omicron well don't worry about omicron because you don't get very sick holy crow we're seeing a hundred thousand you know infections a day in ontario all the way through it i just refused to believe anything that anybody said after about the third lockdown um, i think i started to get that cynicism too because they yeah. didn't seem to know yeah. And from that, the, and I'm not sure how this happened, but my, my sense of isolation um, became more comfortable, like you're saying. And I'm like you, and I'm afraid to admit it, but I'm uh, conflicted about being able to go out. And there's part of me who says, oh, I hope next week they tell us that it's not good anymore and we need to isolate. And, you know, so what I've decided is I'm just not going to believe it, right? I'm going to do it. I'm just not going to believe it. And I'm going to continue with my um, masking and that, that kind of thing. Um, I read an article recently about a woman in PEI, and she has this same issue. And she had worked hard. She could go to the grocery store. Things were going well. And uh, in her case, she was married. And because she regressed back into all of the fears, she was worried actually about her personal relationship with her husband. And whether that was going to to suffer so i think that people are dealing with that as as well because their friends are like you said you don't want to tell anybody you're happy to stay home and let's not open up right but i do think that there are a lot of people out there and let's talk about this for a second there are a lot of people out there who are experiencing levels of anxiety that we've never seen before Right. Um, you know, people who never ha had anxiety at all are some are seeing a lower level and some are seeing this, you know, really high level of anxiety and they don't understand and they don't know what to do. And it's 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 become um, the other pandemic. Right. Yes. So we talk about mental health as the other pandemic. Uh, kids they're talking about kids as uh, suffering so much post-traumatic stress they're they're now going to become generation c for generation COVID. yeah um 
Now, you were president of the board of Canadian Mental Health Association, Niagara, so you're pretty in tune with the the ups and downs of what's happening, certainly here locally, but, um, you know, across the world, uh, across Canada, I'm not going to say across the world, but if you look at Canada, you can pretty much extrapolate that across oh, the world. Yeah. So um, CMHA Niagara just came out with a survey and they're they're calling it running on empty. And you and I have talked about capacity. What we've just talked about really is the capacity on a personal level to deal with mental health issues. And uh, the CMHA report is showing that 60, nearly 65% of people are worried about a new variant. Um, um, more than 55% of Canadians are worried that COVID will circulate for years to come at some level. Um, and the, the number of people, high percentage of people who started experiencing anxiety were not able to get help either because there was no help available because everybody was booked up. They didn't have the money to get yeah. help. They didn't have benefits. So what are you thinking is going to happen as we come out of, of COVID for the people who are not feeling that isolation is going to hold them back, but are, are not getting better because of the lack of services? So I think my first thought has been throughout this, my heart goes out to anybody who is experiencing anxiety for the first time, because the first time I ever experienced it was crushing. And now you're worried about that and COVID. Um, unfortunately, our system is not structured to be able to handle everyone. Um, we are chronically underfunded. And I know, I know people say, well, you should have pushed harder for money during this time. The reality is people were serving people. They didn't have time to lobby for more money. But our system is really only set up for the severe persistent uh, individuals. So if you're, you know, if you're first time anxiety to you, it's overwhelming to the system. It may not be. How long is the wait list before you're able to get on it? You know, how long before you're able to get counseling, even if you have benefits, getting counseling was super difficult during this time. Um, and I think that part of this is also in part because we've we've really ramped up this idea of mindfulness in the last couple of years, right? So here's all your mindfulness techniques to lower your anxiety. And when my anxiety is just like at a low level, I can, mindfulness helps, right? All the stopping thinking strategies helps. But we've now created it where if you're in a really high state of anxiety, you may not be able to get yourself mindfully out of it. So now you feel you're, you're experiencing your first attack and you feel like a failure because everybody's telling you you should just be able to meditate or, or use your 54321. Um, so I'm also worried that in, over the long term, we're actually creating a new stigma. And that is people who can't just think their way out of anxiety or mindfulness their way out of anxiety. Um, so the system isn't designed to help them. Uh, mindfulness can only go so far. Uh, the system that is providing the service is full of human beings. I think we forget that sometimes who they may have their own anxieties about COVID and working with the public and all of those things. So I feel like we're in a perfect storm. Um, it is not going to be easily solved. And we need to look at as a society, how do we fix this? Not just, you know, not just find a little program here or a little program there, but how do we get these to these people 
Uh, and maybe this might be their only time of high anxiety in their life, and that's fantastic. But for some of them, they will probably find it's persistent, and this system is not set up for that at all, which breaks my heart. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, things like anxiety, you know, you know that I'm bipolar. Uh, it was triggered by a life event. So it was sitting there in the back of my mind. Who knows what would have triggered it, but it was triggered by a life event. And I was really, really ill. And people with anxiety um, may have had a low level anxiety they didn't even know was there. Or it was, yeah, you know what? It's hard at work or everybody gets anxious. Now, this has been triggered into a situation where they have persistent anxiety, like the type of anxiety that you're talking about. And they're not going, how do they even know what mindfulness is? I used to think mindfulness was, oh, why are you telling me I have to go for a walk and listen to the birds? That's actually what I thought mindfulness was. Or, well, you want me to get in the bathtub with some candles? Uh, I didn't understand. And I really, really, really pushed back. I didn't want to be. I didn't want to do that. What I found out was uh, I have a horse, as many people who listen to this show know. And mindfulness for me was when I went to see my horse. Because when I, when I got onto the, you know, literally pulled off the, dri off the road and onto the driveway to go into the farm, everything went away. It didn't matter if the barn was full of three-year-olds. You can still talk about horses. Everything went away. And then I would pull back on the road to, to come home and it would just flood back. Uh, so I don't, people, I don't think a lot of people, and imagine, you know, you're a parent with four kids at home. You're trying to, you know, you're feeling some anxiety. You're trying to struggle your job. You don't know how to um, help your children. Uh, and that kind of, we're talking about post-traumatic stress. Yes. In that sense. Yes. For parents and, and for kids. But you did mention uh, mental health providers. Yes. So I know with lots of the social service agencies, they had to start right away monitoring their staff. Yes. Because the influx of people was growing and growing, growing, whether it was food insecurity, housing insecurity, you know, physical health, mental health. Um, they had to start monitoring their staff. And I think that that's pretty scary when you get to that point. I think part of, part of that is you're looking at a cadre of people whose entire job is focused on them being able to help others. So they're not really good about focusing on what they need. So that's where the employer sort of comes in. Um, I will say though that I still worry that we will come out of COVID and expect things will just go back to normal, right? And now that's just not going to happen. And so how can we help both those individuals and the new individuals into the system. And, and I don't know that there's a comprehensive plan. I guess ideally for me, there would be some sort of at least provincial strategy developed. So you're getting consistency. This is my thinking. Right now we are seeing some money, like you said, but a lot of talk and a lot of awareness at the government level, um, certainly at the provincial level, which is where our funding will come from. There's a lot of awareness of, oh, wow, mental health really is an issue. And it's because of 
what's happened during COVID and it's just become so prevalent and and larger in their face. They can't they can't really ignore it. And a lot of that has come from uh, public pressure and awareness. My fear is that without the public awareness, without these numbers like we're seeing coming out of um, Canadian Mental Health Association, that everything will just like relax and start to go backwards instead of what we're talking about now, which is moving forwards and, and having better funding and, and really understanding and targeting where that money has to go. That's my big concern. Well, and... And I think that the shine on giving money for mental health will very quickly be off. Yeah. You know, this is going to be a government that's going to have to balance books where they've, you know, they've spent a lot during COVID, but they've also given up some revenue sources, you know, revenue that could have come in and be used for these programs. And so I don't, and I also don't want to get into the trap where we'll only fund a new program. So what they do right. is they'll be like, this is a new idea. This is the, the new and hottest, but it starves all the proven programs of funding. So now you can't run the ones you know are proven. You want to try over here. But what if it's not appropriate to do this over here? It's not the right time. They don't then that organization doesn't get any of the money. So, you know, new is important. I think right now we have to at least stop underfunding what, what exists and then figure out what are our priorities going forward. Now, it's a really interesting way of looking at it. And because it is those new programs that'll probably sort of fade away because honestly there will there there may be a reduction in the need for um, some mental health services to help people that we've been talking about who were at, during COVID experiencing a high level uh, uh, you know anxiety whatever other I mean we're talking about anxiety but it's not just anxiety and as, as for many of those people as that sort of wanes and for for some people just goes away completely those new programs may not be, I hadn't thought about that, may not be as necessary because they were so COVID targeted, which then strips everything away and does leave us with the chronic underfunding that, uh, that exists because we're not seeing money going to those existing services, like you said, are, that are proven. So what do we need from people to, to, to keep the pressure on? How do we do this? So, uh, to be honest, um, so I'm a bit of a political geek, but it is election time. We need to tell people what the priorities are. You know, is the priority getting $100 or $120 back in people's pocket? Or what could that go to instead? Say to, you know, I, I'm okay here. You don't need to put $100 in my pocket. Please put the money into mental health. Please do that. Um, and I think we have to keep public presence in the community is also super important. So we need to make sure that we're going out there and we're talking about it and we're putting different faces to mental health because unfortunately there's still a lot of stigma. I mean, Bell Lots talk and those types of things have gone a long way, um, but I still get um, sometimes from colleagues, well, you don't, you don't look like you have major depressive disorder and anxiety and I'm like, or how could you do that? You have a really you know high functioning job. And I always say, because my brain for that time can mostly focus on that, but it doesn't mean I don't have them. So we really need to get people looking at, you know, say, um, and it, it's not popular and no government has ever done it that I'm aware of. When you cut a new program, so like you said, when demand falls, leave the money in the system, right? Unfortunately, what usually happens is new program fades out and whatever dollar figure just goes back, you know, goes back to the pot. And so I think we really need to pressure government it, it, 
cannot get smaller and we need to see a plan for how it's going to increase over the next five or 10 years. Jennifer, thanks for coming on and, and talking to me again. Always a good conversation. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity.